Ecclesiastes 2, 1 through 11, 24 through 26. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this, was, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold in the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The grass withers and the flowers fall. Mark four thirteen through 20. Then Jesus said to them, Don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seeds sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they only last a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word. But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop, some thirty, some sixty, some a hundred times what was sown. The Gospel of our Lord. Will you pray with me, please? Father, in this collection of sayings and observations that the editor calls right and true, 
We ask that you would give us something refreshing, instructive, and nourishing that lifts us out of the mire of despair that can come over us when we consider that all is vanity. Will you help us to see what we didn't before? Will you introduce us more fully to ourselves than we have been before, and most importantly, more deeply, more intimately acquainted and familiar with you because of these words? Oh, come be with us, Lord Jesus. Don't leave us to ourselves. No one can know the thoughts of a man says Paul, except the spirit within him. And we have the spirit of Christ, so we can know your thoughts, O God. Teach them to us so we can think them after you. Come be with us now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometime in the late 70s, I think it was, it could have been the early 80s, I got in trouble at Eastridge Elementary where I was a little pioneer no T's, just a L-I-L. And the reason I got in trouble was this horrible infraction that I committed. I'd taken a cassette recorder to school with me. And in that cassette recorder, you may not know what those are. It's probably Panasonic, five buttons. Had a cassette tape in there, you might not know what those are. That cassette tape was a cherished possession. Charlie Daniels Band. And on it, one of my lifelong favorite songs, The Devil Went Down to Georgia. Now, I was playing this song, this contraband song at recess, apparently, basking in the glow of the children's adulation for my coolness. I don't know if anyone thought I was cool then or ever since. Well, I mean, I certainly haven't. But I got in trouble. My teacher, who frightened me considerably then and in memory, you might know, did not like the fact that this song, when she listened to it, it had at the end, you might know, this song that recounts a certain duel and an interesting wager between the devil who's gone down to Georgia and, and Johnny about who's the best fiddle player who can saw it the hottest. And at the end, Johnny tells the devil after he has emerged victorious, devil, just come on back if you ever want to try again. I done told you once, you young whippersnapper, I'm the best they's ever been. But that's not what the CDB said. They didn't call him a whippersnapper. They called him something else. Inappropriate words for the elementary school. And so that was not good for my record in second grade. But it occurs to me upon reflection that was what was infinitely more scandalous than the curse word that occurred in the song that my teacher never addressed in any way whatsoever is the the underlying oddity and the sort of catastrophic, catastrophic assumption that was beneath the song. And I think that assumption is what's going on here today in this old steel in Ecclesiastes. Because you see, 
The devil goes down to Georgia and he's looking for a soul to steal. He's in a bind because he's way behind. He's willing to make a deal. When he comes across this young man sawing on a fiddle and playing it hot and he jumps up on a hickory stump, he says, boy, let me tell you what. I guess you didn't know it, but I'm a fiddle player too. And if you care to take a dare, I'll make a bet with you. Now, you play a pretty good fiddle, boy, but give the devil his due. I'll bet a fiddle of gold. Now, pay attention. I'll bet a fiddle of gold against your soul because I think I'm better than you. Now, hold on a second. My teacher's concerned about Johnny calling the devil a bad name when Johnny, on the airwaves, is having a wager with the devil for a gold fiddle. He's willing to sacrifice, to bet his soul, like Robert Johnson, that he might win a gold fiddle and that his greatness might be declared. The boy said, my name's Johnny and it might be a sin, but I'll take your bet. You're going to regret because I'm the best they's ever been. That is the scandal. That is the oddity. Not the, I done told you once you... A fiddle of gold. What is Johnny doing? Is this a good wager? A fiddle of gold against a soul? Fighting the devil to show who's the greatest of all? You think of the preacher, the, the, the compiler, the assembler of these words of wisdom, these observations, these insights in Ecclesiastes. We're listening to that song. He would say, Johnny, vanity of vanities. Yes, yes, we know you won, but that's, that's insignificant. Why are you wagering your soul for a gold fiddle? What's that going to do? How's that gold fiddle? How's your greatness as a fiddle player? going to help you when you get diagnosed with cancer. What on earth, when you are lonely at night and you start to wonder, what is my life worth? How are you going to console yourself with a gold fiddle? When you think in some still moment, your phone battery died and there's nothing to look at and you have this existential terror that you're standing there, nothing before everyone and everything. And the terror of being by yourself. How is a gold fist? How is knowing that you have beat the devil in a fiddle contest? How is that going to help you? How is that not a vain pursuit and a vain hope ultimately? C.D.B., Charlie Daniels, was quite a philosopher. The author, the compiler of this passage wants us to look at these bad wagers we might make. The kinds of ways that we try to steal ourselves. S-T-E-E-L. We fortify ourselves. We create scarecrows, as Scorby mentioned, that try to frighten away the ultimate realities that loom ahead of us. How can we prop ourselves up? And he, as a king, taking on this persona of a king, 
makes some pursuits. He says, I applied my heart in the previous verses right before what was read. I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And I perceived that this is also but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases this increases sorrow. This compiler of wisdom, this pursuer of meaning, which is what people do, says, I figured since I had everything, since I was a great king, that I would try to figure out what is good for people to do. That I might see what was good for the children of men to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. What wagers should they take? What pursuits should they make? What could they do that would have some some value at the end? What could they do that would lead to some profit for their life? What golden fiddles could they fight for? And the first one he says is, what I'll do is I'll get wisdom. Because wisdom is is the path of God. It's godly skill and living. I'll get wisdom. I'll get knowledge. Perhaps that will help. And his first recognition is that even this good thing called wisdom, which he says is with him when he pursues pleasure, when he pursues projects, when he pursues the gathering and accumulating of wealth, this wisdom that's still in his heart guiding him in what to do, even that has a certain transliteration in Hebrew. You remember vanity is that word hebel. That's the transliteration in Hebrew, H-E-B-E-L or H-E-V-E-L, depending. Which means vapor, mist. That that trying to grab after wisdom in a way is, is grabbing after the wind. Because he says the more you know, the more trouble you bring on yourself. Well, this is important to realize because we're in a time where people tend to think that the more information we can get about a thing, the better everyone's going to be. We can solve societal ills. We can solve bad behavior by more comprehensive educational processes. No one has stopped to think that how that has not worked. We know more than, in terms of information than any people have ever known at any point in human history, and I don't think we're any better than any people have ever been. And we might be worse. But he says, in much wisdom, the more you understand, there's much vexation, there's much futility, there's much frustration. And the person who increases their knowledge increases their sorrow. We had a professor in seminary who used to tell us, he had this great adage, facts up, fuzz up, wise up, back up. Facts up. Yes, of course I'll say it again. Facts up, F-A-C-T-S, facts up. Fuzz up, wise up, back up. His point was, the less you know about a thing, the more sure you can be about it. If you see a tennis ball in that back corner there, that tennis ball will look green. It'll look smooth. The closer you get to that sucker, you'll realize that tennis ball ain't smooth at all. It's fuzzy. The closer you get, the more confused things get. With much increase in knowledge comes an increase of sorrow. In our moment, it is presumed 
that everyone should have an opinion about everything that is happening. And so they demonstrate regularly this, the truthfulness of the less you know about a thing, the more certain you can be about it. The less you know, the further back you are, the more loud and angry can your opinion be, and the more clear it is to you how wrong the other side is. I've learned as a pastor, when I'm listening to someone tell me their tale, they're in a dispute with someone. And I hear them, and I'm, as I'm listening, I'm empathizing with them. And I'm finding, I'm thinking, yeah, yeah, let's. Let's go strangle them. As dis- Aren't they awful? Can you believe, has there ever been anyone as awful, as despicable as this person and what they've done to you? It's horrendous. It's easy to feel that way, because you know why? Because I don't know much. I only know what one person's telling me in one moment. I don't know what they're leaving out. They don't know what they're leaving out. I don't know how the other person sees it. But I've learned. I've learned. Facts up. Fuzz up. The closer I get, I get fuzzy. I think, I bet if I talk to the person they're in dispute with, because this has happened to me four or five hundred million times, I bet if I talk to the person they're in dispute with and I got in front of them and I listened to their story, you know what would happen to me? I would become very confused. I would think, oh, This isn't clear at all. These two people seem to both be saying what they think is true. And I can't tell which one is or isn't. Hmm. In fact, it occurs to me, if I'm listening well, I'm going to be confused. If I'm not listening well, I'll already know what's going on before I've heard anybody talk. Because when you listen, you let someone affect you. Well, so... The compiler, the preacher, he, he gives himself to wisdom. Maybe wisdom. Maybe if I get enough wisdom and enough understanding, I'll be able to have a life. A barricade, a bomb shelter against the troubles that come my way, against the, the nothingness of a life. And he says, in fact, no, the more stuff I learned, things didn't get clearer and easier and me feel more secure and defended. Everything got more complicated on me. The more facts I got, the more fuzzy everything got. So he wises up and he backs up and he says, if that's my main thing, then that's vanity. So then he moves on. I said, my heart, I'll test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, Eeyore says, this is also vanity. I said of laughter, it's mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched my heart, how to cheer my body with wine. Maybe if I can make a stout, robust, yet beautiful bouquet IPA, then suddenly my heart would have in it the the nourishing refreshment that it craves. But it was vanity. He thought, I will... After pursuing wisdom, I'll pursue pleasure. I'll pursue happiness. He had read the preamble of independence. He had noted that Thomas Jefferson, when he said that we have these certain inalienable rights as people created equally before the eyes of God, to pursue life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. He knew that George Mason had originally said life, liberty, and property, but that property had gotten scratched out and pursuit of happiness had been placed in its spot. 
He knew this is a fundamental desire of people. Almost everybody in here, everybody in here, sorry. Almost everything you do is done to maximize your happiness. Even stuff you think you're not doing to maximize your happiness, it is. Stuff you do like, I'm going to do this because if I don't, he's going to be mad at me. That's because you want to be happy. You don't want him to be mad at you. And so he says, I thought maybe I could just test my heart with pleasure. Maybe I could go after happiness with full gusto. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. We'll get to that in a minute. But he says, I didn't, I didn't keep anything from myself. He was like the, the pharmacist years ago who told my friend, when he's in a hard situation, he said, you know, living for everybody else. And I'm, I'm just, I'm just going to live for myself now. I'm going to stop living for everybody else and just live for myself now. And my friend and I, even as young 20-something-year-old men, thought, well, that's a peculiar thing to say. When has anybody only ever lived for other people? Who isn't living for themselves? What what does he mean he's going to start? He's going to start doing it more violently? Like more clearly and evidently so that no one has any doubt about it? But see, the... The compiler of this wisdom, he says, here's what's happened. When I ran after happiness, it was vanity. It was a chasing after the wind. Because that's how happiness is. Happiness is a, it's a side benefit. C.S. Lewis has a great quotation. You may have heard him say it somewhere. One talks best when one does not sit down and say, let us converse. One talks best when one does not say, let us converse. What he means is... If your friend comes to you and says, hello, Larry, I was thinking, we are friends. Therefore, let us sit here on this bench together and have ourselves a conversation wherein we may edify our relational connection with one another. You speak and I will speak and we shall together increase our affection for each other. And you would say, "Uh, Bob, have you taken your mocking like this, like taking counseling classes right now? What is happening? Why are you talking like this? How about let's go shoot some baskets? Or let's go for a drive? Or maybe just go away for a minute and let's not be friends anymore. (laughs) But the thing is, is your best conversations aren't conversations where someone said, hey man, let's have a great conversation. Sleep's like that too. You ever found it hard to get to sleep and you thought, I'm going to nail you sleep. You're going down. I'm just like, it's just focus, draw harder. Your football coach's version of going to sleep, did that help? No, you don't go to sleep by trying hard to go to sleep. Now some of you aren't going to sleep tonight. Stop talking about that, you're going to make me a head case. There are some things that are by their nature elusive because they're they're. They're benefits that come from other things. And when you make them your main thing, when you say, i got to get me a fiddle of gold, you're going to find out when you get it, one of the worst things that can happen is you get it. And then you go, oh, it's just a fiddle of gold. (laughs) That doesn't help me at all. It's vanity. And if I go after happiness with all my heart and I go after pleasure with all my heart and eating it's just going to, in the end, feel, ugh. That's why there's a difference, isn't there? And eating 
a bowl of chocolate almond ice cream and eating a carton of it? Let's say you ate a carton of it. You ever walk away from doing something like that? I'm going to watch a show. I'm going to watch six seasons of a show. You ever walk away after that and feel like, oh, man, I feel great. I'm so excited about who I've become. This seems like what the image of God is supposed to be. I would love to have, I would love to, to know that I, how many, oh, only, I watched eight hours straight. Or if you just think about any show you've watched, just look how many episodes there are and do the math. It's simple. You've got a calculator on your phone. How many hours you spent watching things? There's a difference between a little bit of refreshment that comes and like going full hog, literally, the hog trough of pleasure, whatever you think that pleasure might be, thinking if I can get that, then I'm going to be satisfied. And everybody who's tried that finds it very elusive and says, yeah, that is vanity. It's just a fiddle of gold. So he tried wisdom, he tried pleasure. Maybe if I become great. Like Johnny. Before me in Jerusalem. Best he's ever been. He says, so I became great and I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. How did he become great? Well, he made great works. Building projects, capital campaigns. He built houses and planted vineyards for himself. He was Martha Stewart, amalgamated with Bob Vila in the ancient Near East. He made himself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees, his own little Garden of Eden. But the problem with the Garden of Eden, like the problem with everything you might hold out like that, if I get this fiddle of gold, if I can just get this job, if I can just achieve this greatness, we just need to move. I just need to transfer. I just need something new, a new car, a new spouse. People want new things. And the problem they never think about is, what happens when you create your own Garden of Eden, but you have to live there? You've heard the expression, everybody says. The grass is always greener on the other side. That is, of course, until you get there and kill the grass. People rarely think about that. Well, yeah, maybe a new job would be better, but the problem is I'm going to be the one in it. It would be better, but how do I? And so how am I sure it's going to do the trick? Maybe having more money would be better, but how do I know when I get there that that more money, dealing me dealing with it, isn't going to be ruinous for me? It's not going to do the trick. And I bought, see, and then he starts owning people. That's not good. I bought male and female slaves and I had great possessions of herds and flocks. I also gathered for myself silver and gold. I got singers, men and women, and many concubines. He was American. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me. And I considered all my hands had done. I, I looked at it. You know, one of the greatest gifts and curses that can happen to you is to want something really badly and to give yourself full bore toward it and then to get it. And they go, oh, no. What am I going to do with this golden fiddle? I remember sitting at the end of semesters 
just as a young boy and, and, and sleepless nights and zombie-like and had all A's. And I sat there and thought, what, why, what, what did I do that for? What, did that, what good did that do? Working so fever, spended doing it. I considered all that my hands had done, the toil I had expended doing it, and behold, it didn't work. It was all vanity, a striving after the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. I got the golden fiddle, I made the wager, and it didn't work. And I thought, why did I do that? And so the question is, why is this in the Bible again? My small group the other night, we were talking about Ecclesiastes, and I love an honest and earnest woman said these things. She said, I hate this, something like that. I hate this. This is not how life is all the way. Everything isn't purposeless because she's a Christian. And she suffered. And she's known disillusionment, and she's also known hope. And she says, when I hear this, all is vanity, it's all vanity, it's all vanity, I just want to scream. I just want to scream, she says. And so it's become my goal each week to think, how can I help people not scream after hearing this? Groan, maybe. Scream, no. And here's how. Because he gives us our first little taste of why he's drinking vodka a complete nihilist. He's not a college philosophy major drinking vodka and smashing his head against the wall because he can't figure out things. He says, there's nothing better for a person than that he or she should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This I saw also is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat and who can have enjoyment? That's his secret. If you think that getting enough wisdom, knowledge, achievement, houses, money, financial resourcefulness, enough happiness in your life, that suddenly somehow those will barricade you against nothingness, nah. If you think that these things you have to get in order to be someone, or that they're somehow like a fiddle of gold, going to convince the world of your greatness, that your greatness is something you have to achieve, and you're always on display, and you're always on trial, vanity. It's not going to work. But if you start to imagine that you're a person who lives by the hand of God, that, as Paul says, who has given us everything for our enjoyment, who urges us, who gives that contentment is great gain, who gives gifts to his children because he's a good father. There's nothing better for us to do than eat and drink and find enjoyment in our toil. This also is from the hand of God. On Friday night, I was driving Kathy and and, and one of our sons and one of his friends home, and we were going down Broad Street, and I said to the boy's friend, boy's friend, I don't want to identify him on that. This goes out around the nation's. Boy's friend, are you a man who likes a frosty? Yes, sir, he said. 
Are you allowed to have a Frosty? Are you a man who's allowed to have a Frosty? Because I understand about moms and dads. Yes, sir? Do you have any money? <laughs> he laughed, my wife says. Don't say that to him. You know, I was like, well, he got it, it was a joke. She's very much more caring than I am. She does not want to hurt small children's feelings for some reason. So we pull in and we get ourselves a Frosty. And uh, On a Friday night after a football game, which is when God, the, the, God created Frosties. Well, I can think of at least 32 other occasions. When you haven't had anything to eat or drink in a little while and you're looking forward to that frosty and you put that first little bite in there and you get a little, little bit of, uh, from the hand of God. Thank you. A pleasure. A sweet and simple and gifted pleasure that I did not invent or earn for myself. It was pure confectionary grace. In frozen form. And my son, in another rare, joyful moment, later on said, hey, Dad, thanks for the Frosties. Boom. First time in the history of adolescence that a teenager thanked a parent for something. And what a satisfying moment to get thanked because it said something about what was happening in him not because I needed to be thanked, and to enjoy this glorious treat that was only like a dollar and a half. And the author of Ecclesiastes would say, well, these are gifts that God gives the person who's paying attention, the person who realizes that what they're doing is of another, trying to secure their own greatness. They're trying to magnify the greatness of another. And the more we notice, the more we appreciate, the more we recognize the places we've been given, the relationships and the people we've been given to love and the work we've been given to do, that these aren't mere curses and they're not meant to drive us crazy. These are gifts from the hand of God and should we be able to enjoy some of these simple pleasures? This is a gift. Christian Wyman said this about his grandma. She, who in her last days loved too well, she was a gardener in Texas, She loved too well to lose a single weed to namelessness. And creosote, blue grandma, goat's beard, goat's beard, sorry, goat's beard that is not thriving is amid the cattail's brittle. And amid the cattail's brittle whisper, it whispers, Oh, law, honey, ain't this a praiseful thing? Can you imagine your grandma saying that? If you got a southern one, maybe you can. Oh, law, honey, ain't this a praiseful thing? She had trained eyes watching over each flower in her garden to notice what the hand of God had distributed. And if you know the one who has indeed wrestled with Satan, who does indeed says, I done told you once, you I'm the best there's ever been. We were told that Jesus Christ tasted death for everyone. 
that Satan himself held the keys of death and Jesus ripped them out of his hand and he's tasted it for us so that death is not the final chapter, the final determinative feature of our lives. That we who are connected to him in faith, we live on. Where one day greatness will be conferred on us and right now we live secure because his greatness is increasing. And as his greatness increases in our life, your vanity the emptiness, it's going to be there, but you've got something to work with called noticing praiseful things. Spying out. Where has the hand of God offered you things worthy of your notice that you should inventory and find yourself saying like somebody's grandma in Texas, oh, law, honey, ain't that a praiseful thing? Amen.